Although widespread coverage of the opioid epidemic really took off in the latter half of the past decade, the epidemic has occurred more accurately over three waves since the 1990s. The 90s marked a rise in prescription opioid overdose deaths, 2010 a rise in heroin overdose deaths as the prescription opioid supply declined, and 2013 a rise in synthetic opioid overdose deaths from substances such as fentanyl. Looking at the evolving nature of the opioid epidemic this way, a more complicated picture emerges that forces us to consider interventions that are not solely within the realm of regulations on pharmaceutical companies or rehabilitation and counseling. Today, I'll be specifically focusing on investigating the opioid epidemic in relation to economic issues that may have helped spawn such a rise in addiction. Welcome to this week's episode of Conversations About Books, where I talk with Jennifer Silva, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Bucknell University and author of the book We're Still Here, Pain and Politics in the Heart of America. But before we dive into the interview, let's take a brief look at what the economics literature has to say about addiction and joblessness. A paper published in the National Bureau of Economic Research in 2017 titled When Work Disappears, Manufacturing Decline, and the Falling Marriage Market Value of Young Men finds that shocks to manufacturing labor demand exert large negative impacts on men's relative employment and earnings, shrinking the pool of economically secure young adult men. And in that same time period, as a separate paper by Ann Case and Angus Deaton in 2015 find, drug and alcohol-related mortality rose by epidemic proportions among working-age adults in that time period. But not only do shocks to labor demand seem to play a role in rising addiction among working-age adults, but addiction also seems to be a cause in itself of disengagement with the labor force. A 2017 paper by Alan Kruger notes that while opioid prescriptions per capita were 3.5 times higher in 2015 than in 1999, that increase likely accounts for 20% of the observed decline in male labor force participation. Addiction, and especially from the opioid epidemic, seem to be deeply intertwined with economic issues such as job loss and labor force participation, both as a cause and an effect. That is a theme that also emerges from Silva's interviews and ethnographic work in her book, a theme we'll be exploring in the interview. The initial project of her book was to better understand the term working class politics, and she spends time in a town in the anthracite coal region of Pennsylvania to investigate how the residents conceive of their relation to politics and voting. As she writes in the introduction, however, her conversations with these men and women moved her study of political disengagement far beyond the ballot box and into an intricate maze of family troubles, addiction, joblessness, racism, violence, incarceration, and early death. In our interview, Silver herself describes the strong theme of addiction, and particularly opioid addiction, that emerged from her interviews. I started doing interviewing in rural Pennsylvania in 2015, and I wanted to study political beliefs and behaviors among kind of poor and working class residents. But this is also when, you know, the opioid epidemic or was kind of raging through rural America. And so One of the first places where I started to meet people was actually through a series of addiction forums um, held in like the town hall, local churches, um, because I don't think there were any families that I met that weren't affected by um, a member who was addicted. And these are people from all walks of life. So it definitely were the poor and working class people, but also some of like the middle and upper class as well. So you spoke about the prevalence of addiction and opioids in this town. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about the economic backdrop of this community and kind of what people's perceptions towards economic opportunity as a whole were. 
So this was a place where it used to have a booming economy founded on coal, as well as some other factories like garment making and paper factories. And, you know, the coal industry in this area has really been declining since 1950. Um, you know, that used to support a population of a million people through coal jobs, and now it's maybe a thousand. And, you know, as the coal jobs have went away, you know, you drive down Main Street now and half the shops are boarded up. Um, you know, they don't have as many of the um, social networks that used to be sustained by the coal economy as well. And so people are a lot more isolated. And in terms of um, jobs, it's just right now we see like more low wage jobs in service sectors. So people would work in um, like calling centers or or the home health aides, kind of like low paying, more service jobs. And there was also kind of like a predatory uh, for-profit college um, scene going on where if you wanted to go to like a public community college, you might have to drive like two hours away, but there were like a bunch of these kind of for-profit like business colleges where you might borrow, you know, $16,000 for a certificate in hairdressing and, you know, not even really learn any skills. So I would say it was, there were still like jobs the best jobs were probably warehouse jobs, but they still required you to lift a lot. Um, but they weren't well-paying jobs, and they weren't the kind of union jobs that it was the community was founded upon. And then on top of that, so many people who read my book have said, why don't they just leave? Um, and I think that's just not really a realistic way of thinking about people because it takes – you know, a lot of resources to be able to go rent an apartment and get a job somewhere else. Um, and also, like, you know, there is something about, you know, people are still tied to family and feel responsible for family as well. Definitely. And I think that's actually a pretty underfocused on point, especially in regards to policy intervention focuses um, on moving to opportunity and trying to encourage people to move to areas, typically cities with more available jobs. And on that note, how did you perceive people's attitudes in regards to the changing economy and nature of jobs. So you mentioned that the town is part of the state's coal region, but given that it's very unlikely that coal jobs, you know, make a resurgence in the near future, how did people in the town understand their own relationship to that type of economic transition happening? I think there were a few like people who owned land who hoped that coal would come back, but most people were pretty realistic and most people knew that, you know, coal is dirty and it's bad for the environment and it was a really exploitative industry and it was like, you know, people would have grandparents that had died of black lung and, you know, were never really compensated by the coal companies. Um, people were worried that their streams and rivers had been infected or poisoned and were afraid. Um, that it would hurt their children. So I, I don't think there was too much of a longing to go back, at least in this area. Um, but I think there was also an uncertainty about what was next. Um, people could imagine maybe getting the skills to move out, but I don't think they could quite imagine what would fix their town at this point. I mean, yeah, I think that's a really important question too of, you know, what place-based interventions can look like and the effectiveness of certain interventions over others. Particularly in regards to the opioid crisis, a lot of the discourse around interventions seems to stay within the public health sector specifically, you know, such as increasing access to rehabilitation or methadone clinics. And I'm curious as to what you perceive the implications of that type of almost narrow focus to be for the individuals you spoke with. Yeah, I think at the medical level, it, I mean, definitely we it would be great to see like more beds and you know, addiction centers and health centers um, and maybe more social support like counseling. Um, but then there's like so many other problems that exist like around that. Um, so like housing insecurity is a problem. 
um, you know, stress with food insecurity. Um, I saw like domestic violence and women having no place to go is something that I saw happening. Um, yeah, a lot of like family problems and problems like with, um, you know, being able to take care of children. So it seems like, yeah, there is like the addiction problem itself, but then there's like the whole wraparound world of like people not having just basic necessities, like housing, food, and, you know, transportation to go to the doctor or take their kids to school, Hmm. let alone like, you know, education so that they have like skills and can invest in themselves. Yeah. I think putting it that way, like you said, the wraparound world of addiction is really important actually when thinking about interventions and how we choose to tackle that type of problem. And as we come to a close, I want to thank Professor Silva for sharing these findings from her work and her insights. And I want to end on a quote by sociologist William Julius Wilson in his 1996 book, When Work Disappears. The consequences of high neighborhood joblessness are more devastating than those of high neighborhood poverty. Many of today's problems in the inner city ghetto neighborhoods, crime, family dissolution, welfare, low levels of social organization, and so on, are fundamentally a consequence of the disappearance of work. Wilson was writing in response to questions over the crack epidemic that ravaged many urban areas, and particularly Black communities within those areas, and provided a key insight to turn the focus away from solely the consequences that arose out of the epidemic, but viewed the epidemic itself as a consequence of broader economic trends. J.D. Vance later wrote in his memoir, Hillbilly Elegy, that Wilson's book spoke to him and described his home perfectly. Except, as Vance writes, Wilson wasn't talking about the hillbilly transplants from Appalachia. He was writing about Black people in inner cities. While the crack epidemic and the opioid epidemic elicited starkly different responses, with the former receiving a war on drugs and the latter a pivot towards a focus on rehabilitation, A critical similarity seems to be the structural economic factors that played a large role in starting those epidemics in the first place. Which then begs the question of how should policy, and perhaps economic policy especially, respond?